Can I say a few words before I begin speaking? Are you recording it? You're gonna record the uh, the casual conversation. Casual conversation. Okay. So, yeah. Actually, Ariel does that. Ariel does that. Mm -hmm. He does. It. It's, not, it's not as much a question. It's maybe I should wait till it gets formulated as a question before I ask it. It's more just sharing thoughts and throwing them against your rabbi and seeing what you think. Okay. So, I'm not sure how how to balance. It seems to be that a, a proper Maybe according to how the proper way to approach life is using rational thought and rationality and to, you know, to subdue in many, many respects the emotional uh, you know, impulses that we have and to, to rely on our logical, deductive reasoning. Um, and I'm not sure how much to do that to a... And I'll, the, the extreme example of this would be Know, to, 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 to put down your own uh, you know, emotional desires and your, your personal wants in life in, uh, for the greater greater purpose as it, you know, as it pertains to Amisu. So let's say Abraham Avinu, you know, he had a personal uh, filial love for his son and he had a, a fatherly love for his son and he, you know, Whereas, and interestingly, you, you don't see it as much with Yaakov and Yosef. Yaakov is, is greatly emotionally affected. In many ways, very attached. So, my, my, it's not a question. It's I don't a, need to wear this shirt anymore, right? You don't have to wear it at all. You just have to throw it away. No, 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 I mean, you don't, you don't have to put it away. What's prompting the, 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 the thoughts and the question is, you see all these uh, videos of parents that are losing children in the battle, mm -hmm. and they're able to stay incredibly strong. And the emotional fortitude, it's, it seems to be predicated on the fact that it's not about them and their personal emotions. I won't have a son anymore, and I won't be able to you know, have all these future memories with the son and the children and grandchildren. Because in the greater picture of Am Yisrael, my son served a purpose, and it seems to be a lot. They, they navigate away from the emotion and towards, um, you know, contextualizing everything and putting it in like a, in a seemingly in a rational context. I'm sure not everybody is like. Not, that. Of course not. Yeah. Most lot. people are not like that. There's, you see it. There are some. There's certainly some. So, no what I don't I struggle with, and I don't know how much to balance allowing myself to feel emotional. Attachments or strong emotions towards my children, family, my personal desires in life. And how much of that do I push down and you know tell myself it's not about what you want, it's not about what you like. There are maybe it's not it's balancing emotion versus You're asking how do you deal with it in your life? I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not asking a specific question. Rabbi's gonna say, "What's your question?" Yeah. I wasn't gonna say anything. <laughs> it's, a, it's a random thought. This is the Jordan therapy session. <laughs> so wait. So let me just try to get, get your point. So let me just try to understand what you're saying. You're saying that you're saying that you see uh, emphasis being placed on subduing 
a person's individual attachments or emotional life to some higher principle or some higher... Do you see that as a value? Of the see that as a value that's in the culture, in Jewish culture, or in Torah, or is the ideal? Is is you're asking whether it's no, an ideal should, or why it's an ideal? Should, no, should should we attempt to to subdue our own emotional attachments to people, to things, to likes and dislikes? What what I didn't, I never understood. We spoke about it last year a lot. Is um, no, we spoke about it in the Q and A that and we did remotely with the wives. Somebody that asked was a couple about years ago. what is it? That was a couple of years ago. Yeah. So somebody asked about um, you know is it bad to like Chanel bags or something like that? And you, you gave an answer. You know anything can. There's nothing wrong inherently with liking certain things as long as you're doing it for you know without losing sight over the bigger picture, which is I do it so that I can feel good, so that I can eventually you know. It's not just that this is this is the goal to have this bag and to you know right. be respected by people because I have the bag. Right. So it's my question is having having emotions. Do, do you let your emotions you know overtake you at times? Is it is it more noble to 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 subdue emotions? That's a question. That's formulated in a question, right? So. The that, simple that answer is bothering you in this? It's bothering It's a pretty fundamental question. Yeah. No, I, w- I would say this is subduing your emotions a virtue? good. Right. Is subduing your emotions a goal? That's what you're asking, right? That's what I asked. Okay. A goal or a virtue? Is it, a, is it a value? You know, is it something we should strive to subdue the emotions? Whatever word you want to use. A goal, an objective, a value, a priority. All those words basically would fit. So the question is, the question is, is it really about a, uh, is it really about a, uh, a subduing of emotion, uh, or a, uh, or something else? Because, in let's say for example the case of Abraham Avinu, Abraham Avinu has an attachment to Yitzchak, right? Has an attachment to him, and part of the Akedah, at least the way the Midrash uh, presents it, the per- the whole point of the. Akedah, or much of the uh, developmental process of the Akedah, is for Abraham Avinu to uh, overcome the uh, overcome the attachment that he has to the uh, you know to his son. Right? Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. It's okay. At least now, at least you know he cries here. Yeah, that's true. I di- I didn't see him taking any selfies. I didn't see any selfies. Direct In any case, right? So he was attached to the. Uh, he was attached to the son. So the question is, what happens with somebody like Abraham Avinu? Does Abraham is Abraham Avinu actually? Is it just a matter of? Because what does it mean to suppress emotion? What does it mean to suppress emotion? It means that the emotion is still there, and you're fighting against it, or that you are pushing back at it with the force of will, right? It's willpower. That's what you call willpower, right? So there's a difference between willpower and changing how you feel, right? So in the case of Abraham Avinu, it's not about, I would say, it's not about fighting against the emotion. In other words, it's not just a directly standing in, in, in opposition to your nature. It's understanding what those emotions are and developing through education to a point where the emotions become attached to different things. Okay? So if a person is, for example, uh, 
you, you can use many examples of it. I mean, you can see it in the case of a child. A child is very attached to their toys. You look at the toys, you say, this is very silly, it's very stupid, you're, you're attached to... Uh, but you understand that in the framework of the child, that toy is very, very important. They're very emotionally attached to it. If something happened to the toy, it's going to be devastating to them. To you, it's nothing. It's dull. It's uh, you know, it's, it's it's something of insignificant. But you understand that in their emotional world, it's something significant. Now, if at the age of 25, they still are very attached to their dollhouse, you know, you would say this person has a problem, right? Why? Because they're they haven't matured towards. Uh, the emotions haven't matured in their in their attachments, right? So part of the education now, many most people who don't have Torah, they don't. They, there's a limit to what they mature to, what point they mature to. Okay, meaning it's considered maturity to not be attached to immediate gratification, to be attached to a longer term type of gratification, like achievement or something that requires deferred gratification is considered to be the goal. That's emotional maturity when you're able to defer immediate gratification for the sake of a long-term goal. But the long, long-term goal could be just as actually meaningless as the, uh, as the object of the immediate gratification. It's just that the fact that you were, you're able to have greater satisfaction because you were able to defer your immediate gratification, let's say, right? You're able to work very hard, or you're able to, uh, you know, to, to, to deny yourself certain enjoyments along the way, so you're able to complete an education and make more money, or whatever, or work very hard and, and, and be very successful in, in this or that uh, material endeavor. So that's a type of emotional maturity of discipline that people value, even in the practical, practically people value that kind of a uh, emotional maturity. But the question is, is that really, you know, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a good example. So you have, and in, in, this is totally somewhat random, but maybe not because we're in the we're at the hotel. So uh, in on Tisha B'av, right? So the Rambam, the Rambam's formulation of Hilchot Tisha B'av is different than, let's say, the Balayat Tosafot. So we're used to the Halachot of Tisha B'av, like you're not, you know, you can only learn certain topics, and you're not allowed to Shelat Shalom is not allowed. And so on. If you look in the Rambam, the Rambam has for most of these Halachot. There's a difference between the Chachamim and the ordinary people. Like it says, the Talmidei Chachamim ain't not nimzel aze shalom b'tisha ba'al. Only Talmidei Chachamim. Right? Right. He also has it. That's about the same guy. I was going yeah, to give that as, but I figured we'd start with the Horban bit. You know, but, the, uh, but you have the, uh, the same thing, Limud uh, Torah. Uh, the person who the, the, the learning of Iyov and Varim Haraim that's uh, only for the average person but Tamir Chacham is supposed to sit and not learn anything and be just devastated you know so whereas the the Tosfot has a uh, same you know has an equal uh, uh, for everybody everybody does the same right meaning if Shailat Shalom is not allowed for anybody you never heard someone say well it's allowed but just not for Tamir Chachamim or you know, putting on tefillin. The Rambam says, "Hayu chachamim shalayu menichim matfillin shalosh b'tisha ba'al." Only a certain chachamim. It wasn't. Two damn second. That's right. He said, "Me'olam lo achalnu b'tisha ba'al." Afilu tafshil shal adashim. I didn't need anything. Right? There was only for the Amon Am she'en am yucholim nespoli yotzer midai or something like that. Right? Yeah, they don't have the ability to handle. Right? So, but the point is, what do you see there? You see that there's a difference between a person who actually understands the Khurban Beit HaMikdash and therefore has a genuine emotion about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash that person's emotions are in a different field 
they're, they're, they're occupied with different things than the ordinary person. For the ordinary person to show that this is a significant event, to, to, to become aware of that, requires a little bit of diminishing of their of their enjoyments and a little bit diminishing of their uh, you know of their comforts but for the Tamil Chacham it's a genuine emotional experience his emotions are uh, are have developed in a different uh, different way so the um, so in the uh, <coughs> So in the um, so in, in the same thing is true in Sukkot. That they, you see that the regular people they didn't dance at the uh, at the Simchat Bet Shorevah only the Talmud Chachamim. That was on Cholamoyes. He was okay with that one, but the uh, it's a higher level to dance. Right. Only on only on right. Didn't do on Shabbat. So, but but the, but the point is that. Of the person who are uh, that, that ha- has a different mentality, the emotions change. It's not that the person's going. The halacha doesn't tell you oppose your emotions. It's saying as you grow in your understanding. Emotions. Do we have to get up? Uh, I guess we should stand up. Can you pause the recording? Is it recording or what? Yeah, it's, it's, it's that the emotions evolve as the person's understanding evolves. The person's knowledge. Basic emotions that people have programmed. Right. Love of children. Right. Right. So it's virtuous to subdue that love of the. It's not about subduing. It's about that you can you can evolve in 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 your. For example. Person can have an attack can have an attachment to their child, an emotional attachment that blinds them from doing what's actually in the best interest of the child, because they're not actually thinking about they're not actually loving the child. They're loving themselves. They're loving themselves. They're loving, it's, it's a self. So, like to be aware of the emotions that are you know part of the process is to become aware of the emotions, their nature, and how they're actually influencing you and influencing your judgment. So you can make better decisions. Part of it is that you develop as a, as a human being, you develop as a mind, and as you develop your mind and your understanding, so your your emotions and your priorities also change. It depends. I mean, when it comes to a child, I don't think it's natural or normal for a person to have no uh, feeling or no connection. Like, for example, the Rambam talks about Neil Chod Eben. He talks about a person who doesn't mourn at all. Right? He says that's achzariut. It's like total indifference to human loss to the person's death is like uh, there's something emotionally wrong with that on the other hand if they're it's also unhealthy why because uh, I forget the exact wording but I'm like you know it's a, it, it's a, you have to accept the reality that you know people don't live forever and you know, and and uh, and be able to reconcile yourself to that reality that takes a level of emotional and intellectual maturity right so it's not saying that you should act in a way that there's no significance to a, the loss of a person or that there's no significance to other people. That would be wrong. And certainly emotionally, a person naturally is concerned about the people that he has a connection with that are in, you know, that are his family, his children, his relatives, the ones that he, you know, that are part of his immediate, uh, his immediate family. He's going to have a... Uh, it's not implied your defect, that kind of thinking. That my son to die at war, 
be more okay with your son dying than my son. I don't want to feel that loss. Wouldn't be, I know you don't like the word ideal, but shouldn't it be yes. somebody is, has reached the highest level? Should they, uh, should they, they see everyone the same as thing? equal? Should they see everyone as equal? I think it's and built it should, on. Could be just as hurt, is that you're asking? Or someone else's kid? Could be true that um, you know, and obviously in theory, from the from the perspective of you know, uh, uh, philosophically speaking, there's no difference between uh, your child, someone else's child, and uh, any random person, uh, other than your personal attachment. So you could argue that that's um, that from a from the ultimate philosophical perspective, maybe, but that's not what reality is comprised of. Are we supposed to try to move away from that? Well, what you're suggesting is really like the logic of communism, right? Which is that we should we should go against the natural, uh, the natural biological uh, and social phenomena such as family, such as children, family, which is what society is built out of, and we should go against that and impose from the top a sort of ideology that says that everyone is equal. No, but that's what it would be. That's basically what they're doing. They're, the, the basic idea of communism is saying, or one of the, one of the elements of communism is saying that the that there's no difference between your child and a person's child. You should not really have your own children. Everybody should just be communal, and all the children should live in one, you know, and be taken care of by all the adults. And everyone, well, what's, why should I care more about my child because it came out of my body than anyone else? Right? That's the uh, that's a logical communism imposing the philosophical. It might be a philosophical truth that that's correct, you know. But human society doesn't develop based on the imposing of philosophical truths on humanity. It develops by the communism uh, as a system is, is imposed, like you said, from the top, right? individual level. No, but you're saying that the question you're asking is that the top is the Torah and is that, is that imposing on us? It's not saying you should go against your natural relationships and become indifferent to them. It's saying that, yes, the highest level from a perspective of understanding would be to see that, yeah, really, there's no difference between my child and anyone else, except that I have a responsibility to those in my family, and I don't have as much of a responsibility for those outside my family, but really is this, means that that other person's rights and as a creation of God are equal to mine, and therefore I should be concerned with them, just like I'm concerned with my own, that's the ideal, but you, you mature into that perspective, and it doesn't mean going against the emotional attachments you have with your child. It's the opposite. It's actually, it, it grows out of that relationship. In other words, from the fact that you're, you're caring for others and you're aware of the needs of others, you generalize from that and realize that actually, you know, that's not because my child is my child that I have to care for them. It's because it's a creature of God that has needs that I care about them. And I'm the person most directly responsible. That's actually why I should care about them from an intellectual perspective, let's say. So then you can generalize and say, well, actually, uh, you know, uh, I'm imitating the ways of God and taking care of my child because my child is a creature in need and dependent upon me. Yeah, then, and you can generalize. If you're really emulating God, then you should be a kolma'asav. Your child doesn't make any difference in anybody else. Well, it's not that... Uh, it's there is a truth to that at a certain level, meaning like uh, you can't kill somebody else's child to save your own. 
there, there's a certain like limit where where that is in fact true. But the but and and most people will realize that 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 there is some limit to the extent to which you can put your child's needs in front of the other person's needs. But in practic practically speaking, the idea is that you have a certain realm or certain let's say chelik of, of 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 the world that you're responsible for. And within that chelik, you have to take care of those who are in need, and among those who are in need are your children and your spouse that are dependent. Your dependents, well, right? That's actually the halacha that puts it all into perspective. So you, you can't kill you another person for your child. Right? You can't go say I'm going to kill, or you, you wouldn't be able to do that. There are stories. There's a famous story from the Holocaust about that where they, you know, this guy had a. Had a child that was had an opportunity to bribe the Nazi to change his child, somebody you know, to get his child off the list. People were going to be killed, but then he knew somebody else would be put in. So he asked the rabbi, like, "Am I allowed to do that?" You know, and the rabbi's like, "Look, I don't have any books here. I don't have any sort. I, I can't rule on this. I can't. I can't tell you. I don't know." And he's like, "From the fact that you can't tell me, that means I can't do it." Yeah. So like. But that's that's where there's a, that's where there's a limit. Now, would, would many people would succumb to the, of course, the tremendous pressure of uh, emotional pressure. Right. Uh, that's and that that does take a level of commitment to principle that's beyond many people's emotional ability, ability to handle. But it's coming from a it is it's coming from a part of us which is selfish i mean that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad because we're made to be that way and to grow out of it and so the halakha sort of pushes you out of that tries to push you out of that way of thinking but i think the way to the, the point is that yeah those natural attachments are organically we should be maturing out of those oh, out of those that's, attachments that's the answer to right exactly. it's not that you suppress it it's that organically as you learn and as you reflect you, your mind develops you but it also become will change the way in which you relate to your own children because you will see your children's needs or the, you'll say I'm not supposed to make all my kids into the way that I want them to be I'm supposed to see what their needs and their and their challenges are, and I'm supposed to help them actualize the, the potential that they have as an instrument of God, basically, in their life. I'm, I'm an agent of God in taking care of his creatures. Now, that applies also if I see a person who's, uh, you know, a nebbish person outside of my immediate, that I'm able to help them. That's Abraham Avinu. Abraham Avinu doesn't even have any children in the beginning because every Abraham Avinu is like everyone's fine. Okay? He's he's taking care of everyone and trying to bring to enable everyone to mature to the fullness of their potential. And he doesn't even have a child till later. And even he has a difficulty separating his natural attachment to his first child, you know, his first real child, to, you know, reconciling that with his uh, with his uh, ultimate purpose. And has to. How does that eventual maturity look? The conclusion of the perfect man. What does it look like? Yeah, you know, it looks like a person who who doesn't care for his immediate family as much as he does for the rest of society. He cares. Does he look, a, at, look at society. He cares and, about his immediate family more, but not because they're his immediate right. family and an extension of him as part of his narcissism. Because that's his. But because that's his most direct responsibility. So, but him. the perfect man is. He's a societal man that cares, cares about he, he's the a, greater the perfect, good more than himself? No, the perfect man is a person who is 
who knows and follows the Darche Hashem. So therefore, if he sees a, a nivra of, of the Creator who is in need, he's going to seek to understand the need and address the need and, and, and fulfill the need. But he's, he's going to realize that his immediate environment and sphere is the first priority that he has for his, you know, for that activity. So he's not doing, when he's taking care of his child, he's not saying, oh, this child reflects on me and is an extension of me and my own. Uh, I need to live vicariously through them or I want them to become a certain way. I'm going to mold my child. And then, no, so here. beyond the child, no. is... is is, uh, or let's say their community. What does it say? Or come first. Why does why, why the, the poor people of Europe? Because that's your most immediate way of doing it. Not because my city is actually more important than your city. No. Uh, but because my city is my most immediate sphere of influence and responsibility. God put me on earth to, to be mitaken olam de So that means taking care of both the intellectual and physical and emotional needs of other creatures to be able to bring the world to its ultimate fulfillment based on my understanding of Hashem. Right, based on what I understand as the God's design and God's plan. Okay? So that it requires me to learn God's plan and God's design. You see it everywhere. You see it like geographic spaces like for Shriots, bigger and bigger. And then like the whole thing. What is fear of influence? Your most immediate responsibility is to Vishinantam Nevanecha. Right? Which is to you. But what did the Chazal say? Vishinantam Nevanecha Banecha Elutal Midecha. Right? What if a person comes and they're not your child? So what does the Rambam say? The Rambam says your priority is first your child and, and your grandchild. After that, kol Right, for your, first for yourself. Because if you're an Amar, it's, you're not going to be able to teach. Uh, what are you going to teach them? Yeah. Put your mask on before you put your mask on. Exactly, like on the airplane. Yeah. That's a good, it's a very good analogy for life. No, but you can't you educate. Like Clean your own room before you want to write. Uh, make sure your own house is in order. Whatever we say all the same. You know, but like the point is you can't educate if you're not educated. So, and yet the Rambam says, I haven't, you probably more recently than I did uh, went through Hilfot Talmud Talk because you're doing Rambam Yomiya. But, I, but yeah, I remember he says, like, if your child is an exceptional student, so then you then you should put him first. But still, right? He says something like that. It's a meaning you're not exempt from the mitzvah tamtuah, but if you're, why is it? So what's the what's what's the difference? Normally, for sure, I take precedence because of my mitzvah of education, because my educate my level of education is going to influence my entire family, right? And myself and whatever. But if my child is remarkably a talmid chacham, so then I should put him first and only lo yivatelu. Why? Because he will be a greater influence in the family than you will. He'll be, you know, both in the family and even probably beyond that if he's really exceptional. Right? Like the Rambam says, a person in Hilchot Deot, the Rambam says, when a person has a children, you shouldn't say, I want the child Lisham Sheni or whatever, you know, to do it. Like they used to have a lot of kids to work on the, work on the farm. He said, no, because Ulai Gadol Bi Yisrael. Right? So that's the, so not, you, we do think, you know, as the, as the saying goes, Think globally, act locally, right? That's the, that's the catch. It's true. Right? So if you see in your child exceptional ability, so you know not only for your own family, but even for the Jewish people, he's a greater asset, you have to see him in that light and prioritize his learning for that sake. 
but if you see that, it, you know, but in an ordinary case, so you, you have to prioritize yourself first because you're the leader of the family, you're the, you're the parent, so you, you're the one who's going to have the greatest influence, and it's for sure true. You're going to, you know, as you're, you know, those of us who are older and have older kids, but, you know, at every stage, you're setting the tone for your, um, for your family with what you know, what guidance you're able to give. So I would say that. I would say that's the, that's the point. You know, you're, you're, it's the way you see it that changes. It's not that Avram, after the Akedah, is like, I don't really care about Yitzchak anymore. No, of course he still cared about it. It's just that he understood that he couldn't allow his, the parental emotion to cloud his sense of why Yitzchak was important. It wasn't just for him. It was for a, gra- a greater purpose. That's what all those Midrashim, we've talked about those Midrashim before, the Satan. What does it say? Achar dvarim Achar dvarim shil satan. You know? This guy brought a, had a big party, but he didn't bring any korbanot. He forgot about God. Meaning, he was getting too happy about being a father. It's very exciting. So he... And for Abraham Avinu, indulging in that even a little bit could be uh, could have a huge inf- impact on the way that he's going to raise his child and the way he's going to continue, you know, in terms of his mission. That's why the... Uh, <coughs> that's why at the Akedah... You see, when the Malach tells him, you know, don't do anything to the but the, first of all, it's you know, I think we've talked about this before, but you know, first the first the Malach says to him, you know, don't do anything, <coughs> don't do anything, and so the Chazal say because Abraham said maybe I can make just a small cut, you know, to be yotzei de chovai, you know, because I came, I came all the way here, so he says he said no, don't do anything, and then and then it says he saw. The, so, and then the Malach says, oh, you know, because you didn't hold back your child, I'm going to give you a blessing. And then it says, Abraham looked and he saw the eye. Right? And he brought it as an Ola Tachet Beno. And then Hashem, and then the Malach says an even greater Racha. Right? Because, and that's after he brings the eye. Right? So, right. Why, why is there a, why is there a separate prophecy? Uh, right? Right. He gets the big bracha after he does the ayil. What's the reason? What's the reason? Why doesn't he give him that bracha when he stops? So that he already passed the akedah. So what's the point of that? After the ayil, so so if you look. So what does it mean? What's the significance of that? Uh, of that that detail, right? Why is that important? Right? And then he called the name of the place Hashem And then so that, that that changes everything. But that that is so secondary to the Akedah. It's not even. I mean, the main point of the Akedah was that he was willing to sacrifice his son. Not that he uh, not that he brought an ayil and he said, "I'm going to call this place uh, a sanctuary." What does it mean? It means that he realized that in. He went, he returned back to his focus. See, most people, if they're told you have to kill your son, it's actually, you don't have to kill your son. It's okay. Oh, thank God. That's all I wanted to hear, that I didn't have to kill my son. He says, no. Well, then how am I going to use this as an opportunity? Oh, I need an ayah. And I'm going to designate this now as a place of avodat Hashem for all generations. There's going to be a place of, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, meaning he refocused on his, his mission of making a legacy, not for himself, but of avodat Hashem. Right? A legacy of avodat Hashem. His old purpose. Korban to is the same idea, right? Like even post something good happening to you, yeah. then dedicate it to you still, you tell still, people about it and have people have people around you. Right. 
it's supposed to be an also katagomel everything. Right. Yeah. So the idea, the idea is that a person normally will be once they're out of a situation of tsara, they are relieved. The relieving means what does what does relief mean? If you really think, what is relief? Because when a person's in a crisis, they can't indulge because they're too focused on the, the external crisis that they don't have the emotional capacity to indulge themselves. They can't enjoy anything because they're too upset about the crisis. They're too preoccupied with crisis. <coughs> what is it to have when a crisis is averted? Oh, now I can recede into my self-indulgent mentality and forget about any external uh, any external pressure that was limiting my ability to partake of enjoyment. Wow, I'm back in my own bubble. Thank God for that. For a second, I thought something was piercing the bubble of my self-indulgent narcissism. Wow, it's a good thing if that thing is gone. You know, that's that's, that's so what, true. Right. So, so, so what? Why, why wouldn't this apply to say Yaakov being reunited with Yosef and feeling this immense pleasure and joy that he's personally reunited with his son? Um, what do you mean? That same relief. Because you're misunderstanding why Yaakov was upset. Yaakov was upset, you're saying, because he thought of Yosef as, the, as his bridesmaid, the one that's going to continue the match. He was 100% sure that Yaakov, that Yosef, Yosef was, the, was, was the one who was supposed to pass on the Ushav Avraham Avinu, not the Ushav Mani, the Ushav the, the, so had, had he died in reality, so it wouldn't have been the right... He so it would have been, been right, he would have, so the, the Chet of, of Yaakov was that he didn't formulate a plan B. Huh. Right, meaning he didn't acclimate himself, adapt to the reality, real or, or you know, imagine. What was Abraham's plan B? Well, he, he didn't have that, uh, that God yeah. told him to do that, it was a different story. That, that begin his refusal to be... That's what the, that's what the Midrash says. The Satan said, what are, you, what are you crazy? God just told you that this child is going to be this, and now you're going to kill him. Obviously, you're crazy. Right? That's what the Midrash says was, uh, you know, was part of the, uh, the part of the experience. That begins Yaakov's refusal to be... Uh, basically, you know, Avram would have said, okay, obviously got a different plan. They said, I don't know. Right? He was told to that. But in the case of Yaakov, what he suffered, the point was that he became... Uh, he withdrew, and and that's what it means. That the nevuah came back to him, <coughs> meaning he wasn't able to have nevuah. Even his ability to have, like, why didn't God tell him all those years? Oh, by the way, Yosef is just in Mitzrayim. Don't worry about it. Right? He's like because right after he finds out that he's alive, he has a prophecy, and Hashem says, "Oh yeah, Yosef, we yashit yadu alei no problem." Why are you telling me now? What? Why didn't you tell me twenty-two years ago? I've been sitting here waiting, wondering what's going to be, what's going on, and you held it back. Why? Because obviously it was supposed to be a uh, point of growth for Yaakov. That he would arrive at the, he would say, okay, I have to accept that my tochnit wasn't wasn't correct, and I have to uh, revise the plan. I can't just let the entire thing die because I think was Yaakov wrong about Yosef being his his? uh, Would Avraham have reacted differently? I don't know. Uh, it's hard to deal with counterfactuals. I don't know, but like Yaakov definitely is definitely uh, is. No, was he wrong? Maybe it wasn't Yosef. Maybe it was Yehuda, and he missed the boat on Yehuda the whole time. Or maybe Yehuda was ready. Uh-huh. Or maybe he could have cultivated Yehuda the way he cultivated. He didn't invest the right. So the thing was, maybe he was doing that with Benjamin. 
You know, and that was why that was what the uh, that's why he said it's like his only possibility, but he wasn't the Yosef. This is refusal to be consoled. But that's why you can see that Binyamin is where the Beit Hamikdash is, right? Binyamin and Yehuda. Right. We're not going but the idea is that that Al Ketef Bench Ketef Ab Shachin. That's your result, about Al Ben Ketef Ab Shachin. Industries Parsha and Ketef Ab Shachin. Right. So that's Al Ben is uh, the, the Beit HaMikdash is in Binyamin's territory so obviously Binyamin was somebody and you see the first king Shaul that comes from Binyamin Binyamin was a significant Sheven so it seems like he was investing in Binyamin as the substitute for Yosef and so you, I think part of the problem for many of us and this was a problem that was originally identified by Jordan a few years ago when we you may not remember when we were in this very same space and we were not learning this parasha, but we were learning parasha Vayigash and it's mentioned Vayifkalza no, not Vayifkalza um, when, when Yosef kisses Binyamin and they're crying right? and it says that that it was on the Beth HaMikdash why was he crying? Oh, because, on, because Yosef was Binyamin was crying about Mishkan Shiloh being destroyed and, 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 and Yosef was crying because, and why does it Tzavarav with the you know, plural because there are two Beth HaMikdash that were destroyed in Binyamin Territory, and that's why it was so guys were crying. And so, so we saw that in the Rashi, and um, Jordan asked about it. And so, the, so we, we discussed how, and, and, and I've always remembered that as a great example and illustration of this idea that I try to keep in the front of my mind ever since that, ever since that discussion. Actually, um, I think it actually impacted my my teaching of, of these stories um, a lot, and my thinking about the stories a lot because that Midrash highlights because what we said then was that that Midrash highlights that we tend to reduce the stories of the Avot to stories about psychology like we consider a really good explanation of the story to be a story to be an explanation about psychology about psychology of the players involved what are their motivations what are their uh, you know what are their intentions what are they learning from their experience on on a personal development type of way um, and that's that's our that's the way that we generally frame the the narratives we frame them in terms of a family drama you know not to say that they're just ordinary people but that we're learning from them as human beings struggling with you know emotional and practical issues and so on right? that, that's usually how we read it what does that Midrash really bring out? I'm very thankful to you for bringing up that Midrash because it, it actually directly impacted the way that I try to look at the stories. That it's basically saying to you that even in this emotional reunion, you know, you, it's anachronistic, obviously, that, oh, they were thinking about uh, the Beit HaMikdash. We don't know if that's literally, you know, literally. But the idea is that what was the significance of the unity, of reunion of the family? They understood it in terms of their mission, the ultimate Abrahamic mission. And if you don't read the story that way, then there's a total disconnect between the beginning of Breshid, which is all about Abraham going and Vayikra B'Shem and the story of the uh, Yosef and the brothers, which is just about a bunch of jealous brothers fighting with one brother who goes into Mitzrayim and the father is upset. Like, what does that have to do with anything unless you understand that as part of the mission of Kiddush Hashem and Shiftekan, creating this nation of Am Sheyodeat Hashem, as the Rambam says, Uma Hayodat Hashem, that they were trying to create. You know, if you don't see it that way, so then it just becomes like any family drama and like what happened to Avram caring about like Krav B'Shem Hashem and then all of a sudden it's mainly about family politics. You know, so only if you introduce the idea that they were always really in the back of their mind was a concern. This is what we were talking about last night too when we talked about the Joshua that Netanyahu uh, didn't like the, didn't think, you know, 
he, not that he didn't like the idea, the but he didn't agree with the pasuk, right? That um, that I gave in the the shul in Kiryagat. That Yosef, what it, it says in with regard to Yosef, that uh, that um. Oh, so just to finish that one point before we show this, I, I'm going to come to this, but that that yeah. So therefore, um, the what was you have to assume Yaakov's upsetness here isn't just an emotional upsetness. Why by Why is he so profoundly dropped? Because it's not just the loss of his. We're not looking at a person who only cared about his personal emotional loss. We're talking about somebody who had inherited two generations. He was the grandson of Avraham Avinu who revolutionized man's understanding of God and the world and passed it to his son. And that was Yaakov's job to create an Umah Yodat Hashem. Okay? And he had his golden child that was going to be the leader of the next generation and he surely assumed it would be like the Kohen Gadol of his, you know, Umah Yodat Hashem. And what happens? Dead. Right? How could it be? Right? So that's like that's that is like the extinguishing practically of everything Abraham Avinu built. Okay, you have to look at it in terms of the so to speak spiritual or intellectual project of Abraham Avinu, not just in terms of the family politics when you read it, because otherwise and that's really what that Midrash that, that Jordan brought to our attention those years ago really points out, I think, in a striking way. Because I bring in the Beit HaMikdash, you're like, what? We're talking about brothers reuniting with the, with the Beit HaMikdash. But that really like jars you out of that mentality of thinking of it as just a family reunion. Or another Midrash similar to that is that when Yaakov and Yosef reunite and it says they were saying the Shema. Right? It's a similar thing. Meaning, what was the significance of this moment? Shema Yisrael. Hashem Elokeinu Hashem. Meaning, in the the the, the project, the, the dream, the, the whole process of being miached Shem Shemayim in the world is now capable of being completed. That's the significance of it. Why would you sing Shema when you're supposed to be hugging and reuniting with your family? No, because that's really the importance of it. The importance of it is that we're able now to continue in our, uh, you know, in, in the dream of Abraham Avinu is not lost. That's, a, you know, that's really what it was. So if you don't look at it that way, then it just becomes like any other story. It might as well be, you know, a Hollywood story. Right. So, the, so, 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 so going to just quickly to the Yosef thing, it, it does connect to this. So um, are we recording? Is it's still recording. Oh, okay. No, no, it's good. good. I hope so. Good stuff. It is good. Yeah, it's good. Why not? It's worth maybe. So I don't have to tell this Russia again. Yes, in case, you know, about the... Um, no, it wasn't that he didn't, he didn't like the idea. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. Anyway, so when Yosef was in the house of Potiphar, it says something very interesting there. It says that... Um, it says, Yosef, well, I'm sorry, it says that... Vayi Hashem et Yosef, vayi ish matzliach. Okay? Vayi bevet Adonav Mitzri. He was very successful. Vayar Adonav ki Hashem ito. What does that mean, Hashem he, all of a sudden Potiphar becomes a thea- theologian He's a, he, he knows about Hashem right so the question is what does it mean that he saw that Hashem was with how does he know where did Potiphar get this idea that Hashem you know so the uh, and, uh, and it says it says similarly when he goes down to the prison it says over there that uh, that when he was in the prison that Hashem was with Yosef and um, 
and it says in Sar Bet Roe it called Meuma Biado. The the head of the prison didn't care. Let let Yosef have free reign. Vaasher Hashem Ito because Hashem was with him. Vaasher Hashem Hashem Matzliach. It's like all of a sudden everybody in Egypt knows the Shem Hashem and knows what the Shem is. They're all idol. No, it's a different person. No, no, it's, uh, this is the jailhouse guy. Yeah, right? So, right. So, right. All of a sudden, they all became religious Jews. They see that Hashem is, you know, where does that come from? So, the, uh, so the, the context that I was saying was about Chanukah, because I was talking about how Hazahir Baner, Yulo Banim Talmidei Chachamim. Right? So, I was talking about that. And what does that mean? And what is it? And how could it? Why is the person Zahir Baner? Why does the person care about Chanukah? Because they love Torah, obviously. Because the whole point of the Chanukah was this, this not anybody would love Purim because nobody wants to be dead, let's say, right? Physically, but a person might say Chanukah, okay, you know, if the as long as I would still be alive, they want to kill us, they want us to assimilate, which ninety percent of the Jews do anyway, and actually most of the people fighting on the side of Yevanim were Jewish. Or I should say, maybe not, but most of the Jews were, fighting, were on the side of the Yavanim, right? So, like, the, the amount that were not Yavanim was a tiny minority. And some persons will say, okay, fine, you know. The Mid-Yavanim were, were most of the Jews. The ones who wanted to assimilate, the ones who didn't weren't with the Maccabees. The Maccabees were like a fringe group of people that wanted to, make, to keep Judaism, right? So they, uh, they were Kohanim, whatever. They, uh, so the people who... Uh, uh, you know the, the people who were the majority were the assimilationists. So a person will say, "Yeah, what's the big deal? Okay, if the Torah was lost." So the fact that the person is careful about the Ner shows an appreciation for Torah. He says, "How would I? What life would I have? I'd have nothing without the the you know the survival of Torah. It's everything." A person has to really appreciate and love Torah in order to really celebrate Hanukkah. And if they really love and appreciate Torah, then of course that's going to be something that their kids are going to see. They're going to have Talmidei Chachamim, children of Chachamim, because you know, if you're a football fan, your kids are, you don't have to sit, sit your child down and teach them to be a football fan. They're just going to learn from you that football is really exciting. Let's watch the game. Let's do it. If you like whatever it is, video games, you know, now I guess it's popular even among adults, right? So the kids are going to get into it. That's your passion, and it's going to spread to the people around you, right? So the so in the same way. So that I was saying about Yosef, how could a person like Yosef, anywhere that he goes, again with the subtext, with the context that we're talking about, a person who was a person of chokhmah, was a person of of yirat shamay, was a person of avat Hashem. How can he go anywhere without talking about? Torah in that in that you know I'm using an anachronistic term but that's what the Chazal say meaning about their Torah about, about Hashem about life about the wisdom about what he's doing how could he be in an environment and not talk about it and not share it and not know? so Rashi says Sheaya Shem Shamayim Shagur Befiv he was talking about that's how Potiphar knew Hashem because he was saying all the time Hashem not that he was just some like Hasidish you know, Guy, or whatever, or a Haredi guy that just says Baruch Hashem all the time. He was living the Baruch Hashem, not just a religious guy that uh, that said it as a as a you know because you could hear a lot. You know, my cab driver last night also said Bezrat Hashem. I'm going to be there at this time. You know, they, everyone says. But the but the uh, but that it's actually a part of um, actually a part of, of who he is he's going to talk about it. what are you going to talk about in your house what you're passionate about right that means when you don't have anything else interfering what is your default conversation got another 
It's even a song, right? Where does the Rambam have that pasuk? On the top of Sefer Ahava. Right? That's a meaning if a person loves something, that's what they talk about. They're going to talk about what they love. The question was uh, how do you, you live dissemination of Shem Hashem? Oh, that's what we were talking about last night. Right. All right, and we never really got to the answer of your question because then we went off the rails and we started talking about science and we started talking about Einstein, we started talking about the guy that the fearful symmetry guy who writes about God and his science book, whatever. Yeah. So the idea is, yeah, it's not, it's not just that you stand on the corner with a megaphone. Right. It's that the, the reason I mentioned the book and I never actually closed the circle of that conversation because the reason I mentioned that book of fearful symmetry is because he always talks about God as the designer. God as the designer. And people wrote to him in, in the appendix of the book. He's like, people wrote to me and said, why do I keep talking about the designer and all that like as a person, as a being? He's like, look, I look at the universe and he's like, I don't, I'm not religious. I don't know who it is, but I, there's a design, obviously. There's a design. So I, I take that as a given, right? So a person who's, who integrates, the point is that just to say Baruch Hashem or just to be like, uh, you know, to show, show I'm religious. Usually I'm religious in, um, it's more about the I'm than it is about the that, That's besides the point. That's true. That's the Navim talk about that a lot. Right? The Navim say, you know, oh, you think a fast is putting sackcloth and say, oh, woe is me. But meanwhile, the person right next to you has no, can't eat, and you don't care about that guy. Right? Because that doesn't make you more superior to him, so you don't care about that. Because if I have to give him something, that means he's also important, and that's not the point. I just want God's attention. So the the uh, the, the the point is that if a if a person is um, if a if a person is is in, is religious, usually that means they're disconnected from this world in some way. They're disconnected from this world, and that's why people think of religious people as you know they don't talk religion to me. We don't we don't talk religion. Why? Because they think it's an emotional thing, or it's a supernatural thing. Meaning, either it means you have your head in the clouds because you're disconnected from reality, or it's actually they're both the same thing, really. Meaning, you're disconnected from from reality, either because you're lost in an emotional thing about a belief in God and keep it to yourself, or it's some otherworldly thing which is also dis- disconnects you from reality. Right. So, what's the solution? Not to have God as some separate thing, but to show the way you approach life is with an understanding of God, and that's integrated with your who you are, with who you are, with the way that you look at the world. I'm studying science right now. I'm actually studying the way God created the universe. That's why I brought up that book. It's there's no kind, that's not religious in the sense of some like mumbo jumbo type of religion. It's religious meaning. The real. framework is real. I'm looking at the design of the creator, the formula that he used to create the universe. Like Einstein would say, or like this guy explicitly says in his book, right? So like you can, stu- when you, that's just, a, or I'm, or like, uh, I always, I always use as my example, Stephen Covey, Allah you know about the Seven Habits, right? And a bunch of other books too. He died? He died in a, in like a totally random bicycle accident. Right? It was like, no, years ago. Was this, was this? Stephen Covey, you know, the guy who wrote Seven Habits of Highland. Very good book. I call it Michelet for Goyin. It's basically, it's what it is, right? What he says in the beginning, that there are rules and principles in how the world works. If you live by these principles, you will succeed. If you live in contra- like contradiction, you, con- you contradict them, right? You oppose the principles, you will crash into them. Basically, you'll crash into them and you'll fail, right? He said, I believe 
these principles were created by God. He's like, I'm a religious person. He was like a Mormon, actually. He said, I'm religious, so I believe these principles were how God designed the universe. This, this, this part of it. That is literally Mishle. That's literally what Mishle is about. Right? Right? Take you back Mishle. And Mishle does it. In the, in the beginning of Mishle. Yeah. One second. In the beginning of Mishle, not the very, very opening passage, because that's talking about the uh, guy talking to the time, but look at the. Um, Look at, uh, look at, uh, I mean, even in, in Chokhmot Bachut Tarona, Bachot Titen in the first parak, but the middle of it, okay? Because in the beginning he's talking about not allowing, not going after the crowd, not going after the crowd to your detriment, right? That's the beginning of the story. But then he talks about how wisdom is calling out. She's calling out to you. And she says, How long will you hate knowledge and it will cause your destruction? Right? But take a jump ahead, okay? Take a jump ahead to, um, to, uh, uh, Perek Gimel. Perek Gimel, Pasuk Yudet. Hashem Bechuchma Yasad Aretz. Why is he talking about the universe again? Right? And then a little bit further on. Um, a little bit further on. He says it again. There's another really good but the um, but in any case the point the point is that I, I wanted to just illustrate to you is that what's the what's the what's the point of it what's the point of him mentioning mentioning this idea point of him mentioning this idea is to say that the same chuchmah that is the universe the chuchmah of the universe Hashem bechuchmah yasadar it's why is that in the book of Mishle what does that have to do with me Mishle is about practical practical but the point is that these principles derive from the very principles that are the organized principles of nature. The chukmah of God is that a person who lives according to wisdom will succeed. According to the real principles has to discover them and understand. That's what Stephen Covey is talking about. That's why I called it Mishlei for Goyim. Because that's exactly what the Mishlei said. I'm teaching you wisdom, but basically this is wisdom that is calling out to you from the external reality. Right? It's calling out to you from external reality that things are governed by wisdom. And if you don't, if you try to go against that, work against that, you're not going to say, you're not going to Right? So the so in any case the um, I have no idea how we got onto this, but um, uh, right. Oh, because we were talking about how can you so a person who ex- who says something like Stephen Covey, for example, look, I, I live a life of wisdom, I live a life of principles and of reflection and of intelligence because that's how God designed the world. The world is designed with chokhmah, so living in accordance with chokhmah is how I succeed. That's a way of being a man of God without sounding like a kook. Because what makes you sound like a kook is either that you're lost in a supernatural world or you're lost in an emotional world. But if you're grounded in this world and just saying, see a design in nature that comes from the designer. That's why I've always found great... uh, I've never had a problem debating with atheists. I don't really debate with them. I just say to them, I just get them to... Because their idea, most atheists, are rejecting a God who actually doesn't exist. They don't know what God is. They think God is a magic man in the sky with long beard. Right. I always tell. I always say, I agree with you on 99% of, the, of everything you say. 
The only thing is, I think the world has a cause. Don't you think it has? Yeah, but we don't know anything about it. Okay, I agree, we don't know anything about it. You know? That's exactly right. Well, but what about religion? Forget religion. I'm just saying the universe has a cause, right? It has to have a cause. Where did the laws come from? It came from somewhere. You know? It's an intelligent designer argument. It's not intelligent design. Well, intelligent design became, um, became tainted by, like, as an opposition to evolution or something like that. I don't... I have no problem with evolution. I don't know if it's true or not, but I don't have a problem with it. It doesn't matter to me. And it shouldn't matter to anybody, in my opinion. If God is able to create the universe... And simply by one act of creation of the Big Bang, everything around us actually evolved. I think that's pretty amazing. Cool. Yeah. I don't see what's wrong with that. I think that's actually more incredible. The Rambam in the morning book, I guarantee you, okay, I can't guarantee you 100%, but 99.9%, verging on 100%, that if the Rambam would, the Rambam would love the theory of evolution. Say, right, exactly. God didn't have to do any intervention with one act. Why should God have to do any more than necessary? That to create the conditions, he could put laws in place and create the conditions that allowed everything to emerge by itself. That's incredible. That's the most What's the problem? Yeah. Right? It's like uh, one, one person gave an analogy. What's greater? Someone who can make a masterpiece painting by doing a thousand strokes of the brush or one stroke? I think it's incredible. I would love for it to be true. I don't know if it is. But it would be nice. Uh, there, there, there's a there's a book that's called Mind and Cosmos. I've mentioned it many times before. It's a book by a guy, very interesting guy, talking about how I know I've mentioned it before about biology, how how everything in the universe points towards mind, meaning for some reason things are organized intelligibly and intelligence that isn't just practical, which is all you would actually need for evolutionary mechanisms to work, right? You could say we, we have evolved intelligence because it allows us to be more, to survive better, but you can't say that we evolved the ability to understand the theory of relativity allows us to survive better, right? It doesn't make sense. Is Nagel, Thomas Nagel? So he, he talks about that and he's like, there is clearly a design in nature towards the purpose of mind coming to life. And into, but he says, however, there's no God. Right. So he's like, I know that seems contradictory. I know it seems contradictory to say that there is purpose without a, without a creator. He's like, but I can't accept the idea of a creator, so I have to say. Like, even though I know it might not make sense. It's a weird. Everything's about God. Right. He's strangely self-aware. But I'm going to be emotional right. and this is... Right. He's strangely self-aware of his conscious decision not to accept an obvious reality that he himself discovered. Right? It's, it's weird. Like, at least Einstein, like we were talking about last night, when he came across the problem that relativity necessitates a Big Bang, which eliminates the Spinozan idea of the uni- nature and God being one. Right? So, uh, he at least thought he could solve the problem in a rational way to sidestep that, pro- that issue and he failed. Right? But he, he didn't think that, oh, I'll, I'll know that that's the only solution and I won't accept it. Right? Once he knew that was the only solution, he accepted it. So, anyway, but he was a unique person. Most people can't do it. But this guy was the only person I know who explicitly says this is the clear conclusion from all that I've written that obviously there's a there's a purpose that they, it's, there's no way that this evolved just not directed in some way towards the end of 
people, a mind emerging and a, a mind aware of the intelligibility of the universe emerging, but there's no God. It doesn't make any sense. It literally makes no sense, but it's okay. That's what he said. You know? So like, the point is you can talk about you can talk about God and you can talk about Chuchmah as coming from God without sounding like a kook. You can. It's when you start to get into supernatural stuff and you start sounding like a kook. Or if it's just emotional, you know, it's overly emotional, it all comes from emotions, it sounds like a kook. But there's nothing, you know. So when, so once you understand... Why do you care if it sounds like a kook? No, I don't. I don't necessarily care about that. I'm just saying that. Um, like, what if the, there's, there's an idea? Like, if, if we were given the idea, you admonish your kids, knowing that they're able to, to take it. You just you just dispute. Uh-huh. No, I'm, I'm thinking more about like the idea of sounding like a kook. Should it be? It depends what you mean by sound like a kook. Right. So if you're saying nonsense, then yeah. Like for example, if I start, if I if I'm talking to you, if I'm talking to you, and I tell you some very strange agadam or Midrash that sound makes no sense on the surface, right? Because of the context that we're having the discussion, you know that I don't think that that's a literal reality. But if you say that same thing to somebody on the outside, they're going to be like, religion is so stupid and ridiculous. It, it really depends on the context of where they are. There are people that if you say to them, God doesn't have emotion, they say, what? Of course he does. He loves us. They can't handle it. They're not ready for it. So you have to slowly help them to understand what it means. That actually emotion is physical. Emotion is 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 biological. It's not a good in itself. It's part of what we are. Yeah. Yeah. So in any case, that's when you read the stories, I think it's very important. I learned it from Jordan. He was the one who really brought home to me the importance of it. I wouldn't, you know, it's there. Like most truths that, you know, that it was it was always there, but it wasn't something that was clearly like in front of my mind all the time. But ever since that discussion those years ago, it, it remained in front of my mind. That, that you always have to, re- whenever you have a nice douche, right, always reconnect it explicitly to the mission. Don't allow it to just be implicit. And I think that's the point of those midrashim. Always connect it back to what is the real significance. Why is it important that Yosef is gone or Binyamin or this? Why is it important that they're reunited? Not stam because they're our ancestors and we, we feel bad for them. Because the focus was the Mikdash. And then now that we don't have the Mikdash? Well, the Mikdash is just representative of, of this the mission. Idea. Because we're going back idea. to the Akedah for a second. What is, when, where did the Akedah happen? On Hara Moriah, which is, uh, which is the Harabite, which is right over there. Right? And, uh, and what's the idea of the... Uh, what is the idea of the uh, Beit HaMikdash? The idea of Beit HaMikdash is the idea of creating an institution that will guide humanity to an understanding Yidiyat Hashem and Avat Hashem, all the ideas that Abraham Avinu, Yichud Hashem, that he wanted to proclaim. So the Mikdash is a place so, where everyone can come and tie themselves into this mission. It's right. It's, the, it's, an, it's understanding that human... Uh, human... Uh, that society... All society works through institutions of and places that are organized around certain purposes. We have, you know, theaters and schools and libraries and bowling alleys and whatever, right? You have places that are organized around certain activities. And so having an institution, even though it's true that the real Mishkan Hashem is in my heart, you know, whatever. Yeah? You know the song, right? 
there's a truth to that. It really occurs in the individual, and every individual who would come to the Beit HaMikdash would have a different experience on a personal level, that is true. But having an institution that's meant to foster that is the design of the, is the ultimate purpose. Even when the Jewish people crossed Yamsuf, they said, Mikdash Hashem kon riyadecha. So the idea of having a Mikdash Hashem is a center on earth that represents ki beti bet tefillah yikari lechol it's, you know, midei Shabbat b'Shabbato, midei Chodesh b'Chotro, yavo kol basar l'shtachavot lefanim. Right? The idea is that there's a place that represents this sense of unity of God. You know, and from which instruction about unity of God comes. It's the same as tefillah. A person in, in the areas that are most critical to avodat Hashem, it's the most individual. Okay, it's not the most institutional. So like, lulav is the same lulav for everyone. Your kavanah during lulav is one thing, mine is a different thing, another guy's another thing, but there, but lulav is a lulav. But Talmud Torah, the level of a person's learning, which is really the essence of how their mind is evolving in their Yidiyat Hashem, is very particular to the individual. Tfilah, which is also of the essence, really the two main mitzvot that a person does is Torah and Tfilah. Sometimes we emphasize the Torah too much, sometimes we emphasize the tefillah not enough. Some people emphasize the tefillah too much and not the Torah. They're both really, really essential. They're about the development of the person. So that's very personal. Two different people are having totally different tefillot. Right? And their experience, because it's the internal experience that's going on. That's really, you know, just like a hundred people can hear the same shiur from a rabbi and they have a different opinion about what he said. Hira. How? Because they're processing it in their own framework, and the same with tefillah. And I feel like the tefillah throws a lot at you, and people are like overwhelmed by how much tefillah there is. But it's like trying to see what's going to catch for that individual. You know, it's like there's a lot in there because it, it, it's it's for me at least. My experience has been that different elements, different aspects of the prayer jump out at me or become more significant to me at different stages of my own life. Um, depending on what I'm thinking about and what, what, what the direction of my thought is, and uh, and I think everyone is like that. There are the parts of the tefillah that you feel more connected to, or that you feel more meaningful, and parts that you feel less, and that develop that, that evolves with, with time and with your learning. You know, what does it say? Uh, that's also Mishnah, right? Somebody who turns their ear away from learn from Torah then their tefillah is an abomination because what is tefillah if not standing before God and what does standing before God mean if not reflecting on your understanding of God and your relationship with it which can only be as good as your Torah is if Torah is very low you have, a, you have the understanding of God of a third grader then uh, unless the third grader is like the Vilna Gaon the regular third grader then your tefillah is not gonna is gonna be uh, is going to be a to'eva because it's going to not be true. It's going to be based on an immature concept of God that is undeveloped and closer to idolatry than real. Than, than, you know? That's what I'm saying. What? The idea that it's a reality that the more you have more you're able, the more these, not the more meaningful experiences are, but the reality is, is that someone like Moshe Rabbeinu, someone who doesn't have the framework of the Torah, missing a lot in these situations like in the Bible. In the tefillah? Yeah. It's not a known text? Or is it
doesn't get a chance to open up a Torah once a year, and then one day his Torah is received, it's just as powerful, it's just as transformative, and you can't push it back against the elitist idea that, oh, you have to be coming from to really get somewhere. Judaism is very elitist religion. I always thought it's very funny when they're like, the Rambam was an elitist. What are you talking about? The entire Torah is elitist. The entire, entire Talmud is elitist. It's like, Tambidei Chachamim, this. Regular people, not so much. You know? The If they touch something, it's Tameh. Like, the, it's the whole Talmud is elitist, if you go by that. El- What's the problem with elitism? Elitism is wrong when it's based upon... Not based on merit. Okay? When it's based upon money or social status or something that they inherited even a person who made a lot of money from their own intelligence we respect them more than a guy who inherited the money it's like that's elitism because oh because that guy inherited a lot of money he's better than me if a guy made a lot of money he is better than me he's very successful right he's better than me in that okay so it's like but elitism is when you create a uh, a non-merit based factor that puts people in a position of superiority to other people like my skin color is white therefore I'm better than you what do you mean why, why, why is that so so the so that's the um, the uh, or like uh, what's his name said Akavya bin Mahalalil says you know the, the famous story about him with his son with his son Akavya bin Mahalalil was in uh was in uh, was excommunicated, you know, because of the three things that he argued with the Chachamim, and he refused to back down. And then he said, and then when he was about to die, and he, and they said, "We'll make you the Rosh Hashiva." Just forget about those three. And actually, they were weird. His, uh, the, the the I think it's in Masechet Edoyot. There's a machloket about what one of them was. They said, "No, there's no way that he could have ever said some of those things that they attributed them." Whatever. Uh, we have to look at it, uh, look at it again. But the uh, we don't have books here. I'm trying to remember what I can by heart. So, um, but in the story, so Akavya bin Malaleli says to his, to his, they, they said to him, uh, why don't you recant on those three halachot and we'll make you the head of the thing? And he says, I would not, I would rather be a hediot in the eyes of all the other people than in the eyes of Hashem for one moment. Right? I'm never going to, and they'll say I did it because of Sarah. I did it in order to be powerful. I did. I decided. I would rather be a hediot, like a fool, in the eyes of the people that they think that for the, my whole life than to be a fool in front of the Ribbono Shalom for one moment. I'm not going to back down on my convictions for the sake of power. People will just say that I, I'm, a, I'm a, an opportunist. I'm not a, that I have no integrity, right? It's it's in Masachat yeah. So that so the, and then is so. But then at the end of his life, one of them was I think that uh, he said that Dam Yarok is Tamei. One of them was Netzilat Yadaim something, and one of them was that the, you don't give the Mesotat to a Giorit. I think right. And then and then and then and then they said to him Shemaya Bab Talion. Whatever they said that uh, they said that you do give the mesota to a gyor, and he said that's because they're they're from the mishpacha geri, which is like you don't say that. Yeah. Although the gemara does say that Rabbi was darash, he, he made drashot in defense of David Melech because he was a descendant of David Melech. Whatever. Anyway, that's not important. But the, the reason I mentioned it was because so then at his, when he was about to die, he said to his son, "You guys probably all know the story. I'm just telling you like sipuri sipuri safta here, okay?" And anyway, he said to his son when he was about to die, uh, "Recant all the halachot that I know." 
<laughs> they, they said, he said, why? Why, why are you telling me? Your whole life, you threw away your career, basically, for the sake of these ideas, and now you're telling me to recant it? He said, because I heard it from my teachers, they were the majority. I heard, I received it. You didn't receive it, you only heard it from me. You should listen to the majority. Right? So then later on, the funny part is the postscript in the story that is the son said, said to his father, can you please recommend me to your to, to the to the Khaveri? What? No, no, this isn't Ediyoram for sure. The son wanted to He wanted to be accepted into the into the uh, you know the community of the Khachamim. You didn't find it? No? Oh okay. And and he said to him, Ma'asecha yikarevucha or Ma'asecha No no, I'm I'm not gonna help you. Don't don't ask me for recommendations, buddy. It's a merit system. Right? So um so that sense of absolute being principled, like, was uh, even in his relationship with his son, was like, look, you got to earn your way. There's no, it's not a, it's a meritocracy only. Um, the, the, when it comes to chokhmah, we don't get in because your dad was smart. You have to, uh, you have to really earn. So, um, so that's the, uh, that's the thing. So the. Um, so that's that's the problem with elitism, but it's not that it's not to say it's not to say. I would just to go back to your point. It's not to say that like a person's tefillah who isn't educated can't be transformative. It could be, and it could be meaningful, and it could lead them to reflect on things that they haven't reflected on before. Yeah. I think the problem is twofold. One problem is that people don't understand the role of knowledge in Judaism and why it's so critical. Now and and isn't understood the value of it isn't sufficiently understood in its religious value it's viewed as oh an academic thing that that rabbis or 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 yeshiva guys do but no real connection to the religious experience it's two different spheres that's one problem the other problem is that people don't understand tefillah as a reflective activity they understand it as an influencing of god I'm going to say this extra piece of things, you know, this extra paragraph, so God does this or God does that. It's not seen as, I'm going to reflect. No, I'm not saying that about everybody. There are people who do. They really think, you know, they, they have a meaningful tefillah, and they might not be the most educated people, but their tefillah could be better if they had more knowledge. Their tefillah could be more meaningful if they had more. Right, so there's, um, right, so yeah, so he says, uh, oh, it's four things, okay, so I said three, whoops, because that's all I could remember. But he said, uh, so, Right, so that's, I forgot about that. Right, the Sarah Pekuda has to do with, uh, with, uh, Okay, right, so there's, one had to do with Pechor, that was the one I forgot. There's a machloket if he was or not. Because uh, if it was excommunicated or not. Because I think in the next Mishnah, right, because he said, he said they did a fake Right, Shemayi Vabtalion did a fake Mesota for the Gioret because it wasn't it wasn't real because uh, because uh, it, because they were Gerim they felt bad. Right? So let's just say So there were and then and Huayam Matir Sar Bechor Balmum Shenashar Bin Chol Chalon Vachakach Shechatol Chalon Osui. In which case the Gioret got Shifcham Shuchar. And then and then um, and then in the next Mishnah, hold on. Where is it? I thought it was here that they said no. That couldn't be. Lo, uh, that, that 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 he was excommunicated. Isn't it here? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. 
Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Chas v'Shalom Shakav Yainit Nada. Shein Azwan in Elit. I remember the closing. Befnei Kol Adam Yisa Bchuchma Viyat Chet Kakav Yabed Malal Eir. It was somebody else who was pick pick b'Tarat Yadayim. Oh, he was the Tirat Yadayim guy. So, so he was the he was the Bchur and the and the Dam Yarok and the and the Mesotan and the and the Sa'ar of the Tarat. Okay. The point is that it wasn't so much the halachot. It was the you're relying on my bad memory. You're gonna get. Uh, you're gonna I, lose I, a lot. I, had no, I never heard the story before. Like, oh, you never heard about a kavim malalim? It's not about my memory. Oh, I know. I, my memory is bad. I thought it was three things and it was four. I thought it was the wrong thing. The other guy's thing. But it's uh, the general point is the main main thing that uh, that he was a person that, that, that the idea of meritocracy in Judaism. It's not elitist to say that chachamim are superior to idiots. It's, that, that's, not, that's not elitist. That's, that's, actually, that's actually true. But an educated person is better than an uneducated person. Only in Harvard they lost that, 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 that idea. Yeah, but in, 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 most, in most places in society, they, uh, they still subscribe to the idea that having knowledge is better than not having it. I don't, it's not really, so, so of course, more knowledge in tefillah, doesn't just mean know that you're praying to God and not Baal, it means, you know, have an understanding that will affect your tefillah. You even see that, what is a halakha that shows you that there's a relationship between knowledge and tefillah? Very obvious. Knowledge. I don't want you to say that. There's two things, two uh, two different things you could identify that show. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not even going to tell you if I can say the answer that I'm thinking. Go back to the question. How do you know there's a connection between like limud and tefillah? There's two things that I could think of. The connection between limud and Torah. Tefillah and 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 is it one qualifying question? A halachic institution that show. No, no, all the all the time. I'm not the question. Yeah. How do you? There, there's, there is, a, there's something. We demonstrate on a daily basis that there is a connection between limud Torah and tefillah. That they're not two totally different things. That they're intertwined with each other. That's why, right? We read the Torah during tefillah, which makes no sense. It has nothing to do with the prayer. Well, we're in the middle of doing a prayer. All of a sudden, they take out a Torah, start reading it, and saying Bachorah. It's not a prayer. Why are we doing that? And in the olden days, at Targum. Being they're explaining it along the way. Shema is that one? The other one is the Shema. Yeah, because the Shema is really a separate mitzvah. Nothing to do with it. has nothing to do with tefillah, actually. We, we do it before tefillah because But really, Shema is limut Torah. But it is limut Torah. It's like the basis of all limut Torah is Shema. It's the fundamentals of limut. That's what it is. So if you, when you say... Uh, when you say the Bechot on the Kriyat Shema the Ahavat Olam Vachai is actually Bechot Torah. that's why the, the Gemara says somebody who gets up before a Kriyat Shema and wants to learn Torah should say the Bechot of the Torah Asher Kiddushanu B'mitzvot HaVetzivanu Wal Tibrei Torah etc but somebody who just goes right to Tefillah he doesn't have to say it because he's going to say Ahavat Olam right that's the uh, that's the, that's the Pshad of it I'm not going into the Rishon he's like well what, you have to learn right after you have to the, the point that the pshat is that, that is the learning that Kriyat Shema is learning it is the mitzvah to learn Vidibar Tabam is the mitzvah 
what are they what is, what is the learning the learning is of the most fundamental passages that set a framework for all of limud Torah that's why you do it in the morning and night because learning Torah is right not just because you say Shema it's because what do we say that's idea it doesn't say that doesn't just mean in the three paragraphs of Shema it means Torah but it's saying it's, this is the foundation of all of all limud Torah in fact the uh, the the uh, there's a there's an opinion in the Gemara that says Kriyat Shema de Rabbanan, right? Yeah, this is Kriyat Shema de Rabbanan. The Tosfot is posing Kriyat Shema de Rabbanan, right? But the but there's a, interesting. This is very random, very random. I but you've heard of the Shagat Aryeh, right? Shagat Aryeh. is called in the Yeshivas, right? You've heard of him. So he has a long piece where he says that even the opinions that say the Kriyat Shema de Rabbanan. It's not that they hold that there's no mitzvah de oraita. It's that they hold that there's a mitzvah to learn Torah in the morning and the night because it says They just were mitaken which parashiyot to learn. To which parashiyot to learn and they chose the parashiyot that were the most fundamental because you see that they're in the Shema, they're, they're in the Mizuzah, they're in the Tefillin and so on. So he, he says, there's some, there's some sources that seem to contradict that, some Rishonim will contradict that, but he has a whole like, piece on it where he makes a convincing argument for it, that this idea, which there, I've seen many others bring it too. I think I saw, I've, I've seen other like modern, modern, uh, and maybe even Rav Melamed said somewhere, in somewhere that I saw, I don't know, I saw, I saw some people say to modern people, take that idea that basically, you don't have to say that the Torah literally means read these paragraphs evening and morning, it could be that it means learn Torah evening and morning when you wake up and go to bed. And the Chazal were mitakin these paragraphs. Or no, really the Torah itself tells you you have to read specifically these paragraphs. That's the machloket. He says it's not really a machloket. You have to have something read in the morning and the night. Right? It's a machloket whether the decision of those parashiyot was deoraito or deoraito. He makes a good case for it. So it's very, it's very interesting. Check out. Okay, you're not going to want to do that. There's a lot of pilpul. But it's interesting. But the, the main point is that that is Limut Torah. The Avi Avot Limut Torah is the Kriyat Shema. You start with it and you end with it. It's the beginning of the day and the end of the day. It's the, that is everything that you learn, you should be asking yourself, how is this bringing me to what the Kriyat Shema, you know, Yichudo Vitalmudo Ve'avaton, all these things, is, is, is giving you the, how you're supposed to be finding your way to that in, 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 in your learning of Torah. Or the, the, the second paragraph of Shema, how life, your success in life is contingent upon your relationship with God. You know, that this is what learning Torah should be leading you to understand. You should be distilling from your Limut Torah an understanding of that. How the mitzvot do that and how they accomplish that. You know? So that's, that's, that's what the Kriyat Shema is. So Kriyat Shema is Limud. And right after Limud you have, you have, you have Amidah. Not only that, I mean, probably we're going to talk about this when we talk about the Filah, but like the, Kriya, the Kriyat Shema has two Bachot before you have, you have, you have Kriyat Shema. You have two bachot always. You have one Yotzer Or Vorechoshech that ends Ba'uchat Hashem Yotzer Amerot. You have Abat Olam in the morning. You have at the nighttime Hamari Varavim and and also Abat Olam for us, right? The Ashkenazim they have the Abarav. So what's the uh, what's the reason for those two? What is the two bachot? So we could have done Be'or Tefillah, everything but the Amidah. Right. Now, what, what's the reason for those two Bechol? What are they really about? Avat Olam is about what? Guys, you say it every day? Please help me. Avat Olam is the relationship It's about one thing. 
והתורה לצאת. התורה ומצוות, חוקים ומשפטים, עוד אחת למטה. על כן השם אלוקינו ושלומנו נשיח בחוקיך ונשמח בין אל... I'm doing the short one. Everything is about... because that's the main way that God shows השגחה on the Jewish people is מלמד תורה לעמו ישראל. What is the first paragraph about? מעריב ערבים about creation. In the morning we expand it. We have the malachim in there. We have the, you know, more detail. On Shabbat it's even more detail. What is that? That's what the Rambam would call, or what the Gemara calls, Davar Gadol. Davar Gadol. Davar Gadol is Maaseh Barishit, Maaseh Merkabah. Davar Katan is Mitzvot. Right? So Davar Gadol includes the Malachim, and the Shemot Hashem, and Ashkacha, and as well as the Barishit. Right? That's Davar Gadol. So in other words, you're creating the framework. What is the framework? The big framework is creation, universe, the Malachim, all of these things. That's the deal. Within that is, uh, is, is the Jewish people. Really, the Jewish people is Atem Kurim Adam. We're Adam, human beings. Human beings gaining a knowledge of God and application to their life. That's Ahabat Olam. That's the idea of, of the two realms in which we encounter Chokmat Hashem. Chokmat Hashem and the Bri'ah, both the metaphysical and physical. And, and, and Chokmat Hashem and the, uh, in, in the Torah. Okay? And then you have Kriyat Shema, Hashem Elokeinu, that's a Hashkacha, and then Hashem Echad, Hashem is, you know, so that's, that's Tavar Gadol already. Right? In other words, in the Kriyat Shema you have both of these ideas. And the, the, the Bechot of Kriyat Shema are different than the Bechot of other mitzvot, because they actually just amplify the ideas of the Shema. They actually amplify the ideas. It's not like Asher Kiddishanu B'mitzvotah B'tzivanu L'Kriyat Shema. Right? It's not that, that would be the normal Raha. It's not. It's an, that's why the Rambam says if a person is misupak, if you read Kriyat Shema or not, you read it with the Brachot. Because that's, do, that, that, that's doing the mitzvah in Bishlei Muta. Right? It, it, it's part of the mitzvah. It's actually part of the doing of the mitzvah. It's not a separate, not a separate thing. Right? And that's why... In, well, I don't want to go into all the halachot of Kriyat But yeah, that's... That's the, uh, the the idea is these two realms. You have Davar Gadol, what the Rambam calls, but right, Maseh Bereshit, Maseh Merkava. It's actually Masaket Zukah calls it that, or Masaket Chagiga, whatever. Right, the, the the macro, the micro. It's still not a micro because it's pretty infinite, but you know, the mitzvah, the Torah, mitzvah is, is in the human realm. In the human realm, the difference is what makes Davar Gadol Davar Gadol is the subject matter and the depth. What makes Devar Kadan is both the subject matter, that it's about human life mainly, the mitzvot, and, and also the depth is not at, as great as the depth of Devar Kadol. But that's, these two things you have, and then you have Yitzhak Mitzrayim. What's Yitzhak Mitzrayim's significance to Kriyat Shema? So we became an Am. Why is that significant to Kriyat Shema? Keeping it in the realm of Limud for a second. Remembering that Kriyat Shema is the Yisod of Limud, of the Limud of the I have a recognition. What is the alternative to a God-based view of the world? Both of the macro as well as the micro. It's a human-based. It's a, that the human being impose upon the world their imaginary framework of human society, culture, uh, in the case, in the extreme, uh, in the extreme, it's... Uh, 
the culture that has a pantheon of gods. Right, or, and, but not just that, because even the pantheon of gods is an instrument in the hand of the dictator to subjugate right. the people to a, a, world, a materialistic worldview that puts himself as the god. The head, right. right? So, so the so the idea of our liberation from Mitzrayim is it's not a geula physically; it's a mental geula, and you see that from the end because it doesn't end with the Exodus; it ends with Kriyat Yamsuf, where it says, "What did they say?" And what did they say? Hashem meaning they realize that the real king is God. From, right, they saw that the whole empire collapsed. All empires are temporary and fleeting, and not really the master of the universe. Right? So that breakthrough, that gilda is an intellectual gilda. It's a removal of the mind from thinking in terms of the empire, the human empire, to think in terms of God's empire, you could use as a metaphor. Malchut Shamaim. That's the Malchut Shamaim from the Malchut Adam. So we have the, we have the uh, idea of the, frame, the correct framework, and we have the idea of our liberation from the incorrect framework, which is a constant process. It's a constant process of establishing the two principles and rejecting and reflecting on the, the alluring, tempting, but wrong, human-centered view of the world. You know, if you look at what the, the way the Rambam talks about Avraham Avinu, he says that Avraham Avinu realized that everyone in the world was wrong. That was part of the important thing. Meaning it's not just that he realized the truth. He realized that everyone was wrong. Not so simple. So that's the that's the these the brachot before and after the shema. So with that framework, then comes the amida, where the person is now standing before God with that perspective. Right? But I don't want to talk about the amida. Because it's good. I was back until last night. Einstein, the eight months of work they put in. Yeah. Uh, all he didn't want. He wasn't interested in the kavod. That's a, that's the. I was saying last night when you were you were out. Now we don't have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say that the uh, the last night we talked about how there haven't been many the, the, the rarity of major scientific breakthroughs, like the rarity of real sense relativity. Really, why? Because if you look at history, the really major breakthroughs, like transformational breakthroughs in knowledge, are always made by people who have no Don't interest in Kabbalah. Yeah. Yeah. It's an, Don't and care about self. They're not looking at any practical interest or any practical goal. They're just trying to understand. Those are the people who discover them. I'm all about the money now. Right. If you think about Newton, Einstein, the people who really right. Aristotle, whatever, all of these people had no interest in any kavod or practical gain from the knowledge. It was really for the sake of the truth. And it's such a rare personality. It's such a rare phenomenon. So, we're, so then it was talking about like the story about Einstein that you know they was trying to develop the unified theory. I've talked about it, and it is, and we were going to they would work on a certain like there, approach for months, months, and he would just say, "Oh, I guess it's wrong." You know, how could you, you throw, throw out saying, all of our work? I didn't throw it out. We got value from it. We now know that this is wrong. That's also a chidush. They know it's wrong. Or it looks like they're keeping us The only way to get research funding nowadays is for the pharmaceutical because you can see the cause is monetary based at the end yeah. it's they, not they, they have to be able to they have to monetize it they need to monetize it but it's for or, or they have to it's not just money but it's that they have to connect it to some practical use right. I mean it could be health 
it, it could be uh, could be military benefit. It could be health. Like, what did Einstein freak out about when he realized? Well, actually, a bunch of scientists in Einstein circle all realized that that the, the, an the that, they, that an atom bomb could be made based on the science of Einstein, right? So they didn't include Einstein in the inner circle because they thought he was a communist, right? They were, they were that's why the president, whatever. But they, but he, they tried to bring it to the attention of the authorities because they were worried about that. But most people didn't even realize it. Only these like elite people really realized it. The Germans were too busy trying to pr- do their non-Jewish version of physics that didn't include didn't include Einstein's ideas. So that's why they never ended up coming up with the uh, with nuclear bombs. Um, but they were afraid that they would that they would. They were afraid that they would figure it out. And so in 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 that case. There's a purpose to it. Now all of a sudden nuclear physics is a practical money maker or technology maker or it brings convenience. This is the this is really and we'll probably talk about this when we talk about Apodazoa. This is really what happened in the in the generation of Kain. The generation of Kain that disconnects from the idea of Ghana and actually starts building cities. Starts building cities, starts developing art, oh, wow. starts developing technology, starts developing livestock management, starts developing all these industries, disconnected from the idea of looking at God's wisdom for its own sake. Only looking at the, at the world insofar as, you know, I can use it for a purpose. I can, I can monetize it or I can, you know, make it an instrument of, of my purpose. But even Noah, no? Noah also fell into it. He was better than the others, but he, you know... Shem was better than the others, not about the others, but that was later. But Cain uh, was the one who initiated the idea of building a city, building a legacy, naming it after his son. Right. This. You know, it's like the whole idea of a human-centered life, which starts with the chit of Adam Rishon, where they start thinking that we can have our own imaginary idea of what's good and evil and live according to that. Wow. But they hadn't in, they hadn't brought it into a derech Chaim. It was still a uh, you know. Well, that's one of the reasons why they started to curtail that because they said it's not giving us any practical benefit. It's only it's only interesting. Once you got a satellite, you got a satellite in space. Now you don't need you don't need the rest of that. That's why they cut out NASA for a long. They defunded it. There's no point in that. Maybe they only sign it up because because of Elon Musk because he's able to do so much. Space travel can become something that's money making and could be why colonizing other. Well, in a, in, a, in, a, in a million, in a couple million years, we're going to need to move to another planet. <laughs> you know, probably another solar. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. By then, maybe we'll have the technology. Yeah, so we're going to. You guys are hungry. Great. 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 Great.